His parents named him Joseph, but his uncle named him Josephus. Well done, Josephus. He got his inspiration for, for singing from listening to happy birthday songs at Henry birthday parties. It's, you have to be there to enjoy that. Well done. <laughs> yeah, or not. <laughs> I'm trying to purge my memories of, of those times. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to go into hyperdrive today. Incidentally, their last two messages are out on the information table. And this is just kind of a tip if you really want to help yourself to some Bible study. I usually take three or four hours to edit these, the written notes, after the message, as well as the countless hours that go into the preparation of a message. And I usually beef it up with maybe 20, maybe 30, sometimes 40 scripture references. And if you follow the scripture references, they're not the usual kinds you get in a concordance, and some of them are somewhat surprising. So that's just a tip. Sometimes we don't know where to go for Bible study, and that's a good place to try it. So like I said, you might be pleasantly surprised or maybe even shocked by some of the scriptural references. They're not the usual. We were just talking about, Denny just mentioned about going to see the movie The Jesus Revolution, which I found rather fascinating. I've, I've mentioned this before, and I, it's quite close to the heart. It had a profound impact on me because in 1972, when that whole thing was blowing up in California with Calvary Chapel and Pastor Chuck Smith and Lonnie Frisbee, the, street, the hippie street preacher who kind of ignited things and started them off and there was a young man named Dale Yancey, and he had a show, a radio show called The Rock That Never Rolls. And I don't do the internet. I don't look people up on whatever it is, FaceTube or UFace or whatever it is. But I did look up, I did find on one of those things by chance, Dale Yancey. And Dale is still serving the Lord. And I think he was my first point of contact when I went to the Christian Commune up in Burlington, Vermont. And Dale was very open to me. I was received with open arms by all the hippies there, and that was, it was a hippie church. And as I said a couple weeks ago, I, my first service I walked in with bare feet and jeans and hair down to here. I wasn't, a, I wasn't really a hippie, but I liked the fact that I never had to get a haircut or shave or and I could wear flannel shirts and painter's pants which I wore anyways because I was a painter and then all of a sudden painter's pants those white painter's pants with the hook for the hammer and all that stuff became popular so I just wore my work clothes to college and but um, I had that profound life-altering experience that stays with me even to this day in its power in its very initial fresh power in January of 1972. My first point of contact was then with this Jesus Revolution people. And I read in Dale's bio that he and Leon DeVoid, my first pastor, and a group of people from the original ground zero of the Jesus Revolution, Calvary Chapel in Southern California, announced one day to their friends that they were going to move to Vermont and start a church. And they called it his church, and then it became Bethel. And that's the church I went to because the man that was kind of counseling me along was from InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, Pastor Phil Adams. He's a pastor now, if he's still with us. And he said, you're not going to fit in here. And again, this is a repeat story, but I'm saying it for a reason to lead into the message. He said, you, you're not going to like it here. 
it's structured, it's, you know, it's college, it's, and then he said, and don't even try Campus Crusade either, because you're, and there's nothing wrong with Campus Crusade or InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, they're both still very strong organizations, but where I was at that time, he discerned where I was, he said there's a, there's a bunch of burnouts, <laughs> they weren't burnouts, but he called them burnouts down at the bottom of College Street in Burlington, Vermont. And you can't miss it. There's a big sign on the top of the house called His Church. And so he was right. My first point of contact was Dale, Dale Yancey. And if I could contact Dale today, I'd say, well, I know one reason why you guys came to Vermont. And it was for me. Because the fellowship... It began with the message of the prodigal son, which is right down my alley, was my first experience of a Christian community, a, a truly Christian community. There was love, there was openness, there was a purity of lifestyle, there really was. We all worked very hard, and for a while we worked and, and gave our money our paycheck to the deacons, and then they fed us, and we lived in a commune, and I think I had a a top bunk for a while, but preached on the streets, did all that. But when I consider that whole movement, and it was a true movement, and it really, really was the Holy Spirit of God moving in the hearts of countless hundreds of thousands of young people. And many of them were, in fact, burnt out. And they tried to find reality with drugs. They tried to find reality with all kinds of other experimentation. And... They, they did indeed hit a wall, like the generation today is ready to hit a wall, I think. And it became a real experience. But that's the point. It became a real experience. And I was struck by two things in the film. I do recommend the film, and I thought Kelsey Grammer was remarkable as Pastor Chuck Smith. And... He played it very well. And incidentally, Chuck Smith lasted in the ministry until 2013. So 72 to 2013, that's, that's lasting power. But a lot of people did not last out for all these years, that experience, because it was an experience, but it needed some traction. And the traction is the word of God. The word of God revealed by the Holy Spirit, enlightened by the Holy Spirit. My next move was to go to The Bible Speaks, which when you heard that word back then, it was like getting slapped in the face because it had all these. I don't think I've ever been in an organization that wasn't slandered and maligned by the church as well as the world. But there, there was one thing that God led me to there, and that was the accent strong accent on the word of God, the teaching of the word. It wasn't perfect, but it was the word. And I got a radical association with the word there. And then, of course, many of you know that disaffiliating at that time, you come to places where you maybe disagree with the philosophy of ministry or with methodology or with doctrine, and you, you do the right thing, you move on. You disaffiliate and reaffiliate and in, become independent, and that became controversial, not that I wanted it to. And then I was ordained in 91 by Colonel Thiem out in Texas. I, at that point, went there and only told a couple of people that I was going to go, and if I didn't get ordained, I was going to resign from the ministry totally and forget it and hang it up. And for some strange reason, they did ordain me, and... I was ordained by, and I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for all these affiliations. I have no axis to grind. I have no differences to accentuate. It was all a divine leading. And when I, under Colonel Theme, I learned the supreme importance of exegeting the scripture, looking at the Greek, the Greek and the Hebrew, the Aramaic, and getting into the raw guts of the exegesis of the word. And all of this provided a lasting power. And again, in the movie, I was struck by two things. One, 
when the kids were going home and trying to tell their parents, they would say, this is real. Oh, how I wish you knew that this is real. This is real. It wasn't many saying Jesus is real. It was this. There was something about this experience. And it was real. But experience has to have the traction of the word. It has to have the traction of the word being written in your mind and instilled in your heart. And it has to grip and have gripping power and grasping power for it to last. The second thing that I found, and this is what struck me even more so, was the almost magical aura that they gave to water baptism. And water baptism was extremely important back at the, in the Jesus Revolution, as Time magazine called it, because that was kind of like a, a step out of the old life and into the new life, a cleansing. A pure, and that's what baptism is, water baptism is, to the point where I was actually kind of struck by it and said, wow, I don't hold that same magical view of baptism as in the movie. And the Spirit of God at that moment, and I know it was him, said, I didn't send you to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And I thought of 1 Corinthians 1.17. Paul the Apostle, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And so when I came to western Pennsylvania, in California they say, Vermont, what's that? In Vermont, they say, Pittsburgh, what's that? But coming to Western Pennsylvania, I was aware that I was to preach the gospel, and I've never lost that awareness. Little did I know then, in 1978, though, that the gospel that I was preaching would develop into an understanding of the gospel of the glory of the Christ, and that it would be a gospel which would feature Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance. And picture the word of the cross and present the word of the cross and the universally impactful impact of the cross of Christ. I never knew it would burgeon and grow into such a wonderful thing. I was telling my grandson, please stay with the word because... Fifty years ago, every word, every verse that I cherished, that I came into my heart, whether I memorized it or just became familiar with it, became a seed in me that's now a tree. My whole soul is filled with a forest of trees of hope, faith, and love. And it's because the word of God added traction to a real experience. And the experience comes and the experience goes. The presence of the Lord is felt the presence of the Lord is often not felt. When it's not felt, it's because he's conforming you into his own image so that others will feel that presence when you're around. And that's the price. That's the suffering. That's what we go through. And that's why the scripture says we bear about in our bodies all the while the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal bodies. The Jesus Revolution lasted with some of us from 1972 to 2023. The Jesus Revolution lasted with some of us. And in a recent memoir about his church up in Burlington done by Lucy Malinsky, who is, I remember her well also, she never mentioned me. I might have been a flash in the pan. I might have been kind of a hidden person there, but if I, did, if I could tell them now, I think you came to Vermont for me. Others too, for sure. And I'd, I'd be glad to reunite with, with many of them. And I was almost tempted to come here with bare feet and jeans, but I'm so comfortable with that. But today I want to mention that we're arrested and held. The lasting power comes because we are arrested and held by the love of Christ. And so this is the New Covenant community in hyperdrive. 
In 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ, that's hey agape to Christu, the love of Christ. That phrase is so remarkable in itself. Because when you get to phrases like the love of Christ, you ask the question, does that mean Christ's love for me or my love for Christ? And it means both. One of the last things I discussed with Colonel Thiem when we were still in a formal affiliation, he was doing conferences here, I talked about this very phrase, the love of Christ, and especially in Ephesians 3.19 where it says that you may come to know the love of Christ. Here, the love of Christ controls us. And I remember saying to him, and I looked up what it means, that it means both, and it means both at once. Christ's love for us, that kind of tips the scales in that direction more than the other. But our love for Christ, it's all once at once. It happens at once. It's simultaneous. And I looked at a relatively modern exegete named Daniel B. Wallace and he said it's a plenary genitive phrase, meaning it's the love of Christ for us and for all mankind, all of humanity, and our love for Christ in return at the same time. Then I looked up some of the older exegetes, guys from the early 19th century or late 19th century and early 20th century, they didn't have that word plenary, P-L-E-N-A-R-Y genitive, because they hadn't gone that far in the syntax of the New Testament. But they said, we have to call it something like simultaneous genitive. An objective genitive would be our love for Christ. A subjective genitive would be Christ's love for us. When we look at the faith of Christ, the scripture is very clear. Very few people are daring enough to take this leap. But if you take the leap, you'll realize that when it talks about the faith of Christ, it doesn't mean our faith in Christ, but Christ's faithfulness to God, that we are saved by grace through Christ's faithfulness. Your faith got nothing to do with your salvation. Your faith in time, your believing in time during the course of your life will lead to the preservation of your soul in difficult circumstances, the preservation of your soul in circumstances that are even more dangerous, prosperity. It will lead to the salvation of your soul in this time period. But faithfulness, Jesus' faithfulness, his obedience to the extent of the death of the cross is why you and I are saved. And this is something that has lasting power. It's the power that drives us forward in Christ, the knowledge of this love, this faith. And so this, the phrase, the love of Christ, also has the sense of Christ's love. But it includes the reciprocal love that we have for Christ, all in one gift, all in one gift from God. The love of God is being poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, says Romans 5.5. 5. And that's the love of God. Again, it's a comprehensive or a simultaneous genitive, where it's God's love for us, our love for God. God's love for all of humanity. God's love for our enemies. God's love for himself, the fathers for the son, the sons for the father the spirits for the Father and the Son, God's love for all humankind without exception. All that is the, the love of God that's being poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. I have a new adjective for the Holy Spirit that I discovered this week, the hegemonic spirit from the Greek word hegeomai, which comes into our language as hegemon, which means governor or authorized an authorized person. The Holy Spirit is the governing spirit in our life. He's the Lord, the Spirit, but he's also the Spirit of grace. And he is the gift of God's love in us. He pours out that love. 
That love is what holds us, grips us, and gives us traction in the spiritual life. So any Jesus revolution that's going on in us has lasting power. Now, instead of consulting any notes today, I'm going to go the way I'm going here. So there is a connection here in 2 Corinthians 5.14. The love of Christ then goes on to say, controls us. The Greek word is syneko, S-Y-N-E-C-H-O. It means it arrests and holds us. But it also means that it becomes the driving force in our life. It becomes the lasting power in our life. It becomes a fervent power. And then it says this, and I am looking at my notes for this. The love of Christ controls us or impels us or is the driving force forward in us. And then Paul says, having judged this, krino there, K-R-I-N-O, means he came to a judgment after reflection. Some people think that he came to this judgment that I'm about to mention when he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, outside of Damascus. He had a vision of Jesus Christ. He met the righteous one, as the scripture says. Ananias, whose house he went to on Straight Street in Damascus, said, it was the Lord's will that you would see the righteous one, meaning Jesus Christ, and hear a word from his mouth. And the word from his mouth was, why do you persecute me, Saul? And then a calling from him. Paul, Saul of Tarsus, the great persecutor of the church, also now Paul, the chief apostle of the church, came to a judgment. Some say again that it might have been the moment he saw Jesus, he realized this judgment and became convinced of this reality. I think that he combined with that experience and with his meditation on the word of God and his reflection on the word of God, he came to this as a conclusion, a virtually unconditioned conclusion, something that he was convinced of and something that he would never let go of, something that convinced him to the point where there was no challenge against it, no conditions. He realized this as a divine revelation, and this is what he realized. The love of Christ, he says, holds, holds us, arrested us and holds us, having judged this, since one died for all. And that's exactly how it reads in the Greek. I looked at this extremely carefully this week. It doesn't say if one. It says since one. It's a, def a definite first-class condition here. Since one. The word is eis, E-I-S. Since one died, and that's the, it's a certain form of the verb here, apothnesko. Since one died in place of all. And that also means as a representative for all of humanity. Then all, pontes, died. And the way it's written in the Greek text is that the verbs here are coetaneous. They happen at the same time. It's the same event on the cross when one died. The one who died and this is written around the same time as Romans was written, a little before Romans was written, actually. And there, in Romans, Paul said, the one who died is justified from sin. The one who died should be a capital O-N-E because it's Jesus Christ, the one Jesus Christ, Romans 5, 15 through 18. The one Jesus Christ, the one and only, the one and only divine man. Jesus Christ, the one died. The one who dies, he went on to say, is liberated or literally justified away from sin. Dikaioma, dikaio, justified from sin. And that's Jesus Christ. When he died, 
he was liberated from sin's power. He had become sin. When he died, he was liberated from the power of sin. But when he died, all died, and therefore all in him were liberated and justified away from sin. Liberated from the power of sin and death and justified, made righteous. This is in turn verified in Romans 4.25 where the scripture says he was handed over, paradidomi, handed over for our sins, handed over to the cross for our sins, and he was resurrected, raised up. It literally says handed over, then raised up for our justification, for our justification. Now, a key verse in this is, goes back to Psalm 143 and verse 2. I know I'm all over the map, but I'm making one point today, just one. In Psalm 143, 2, the English text, and in, which is the Greek text of Psalm 142, 2, it says, no one living, nobody alive, no human being alive, not a single person living, will be justified in God's sight, will be justified or considered righteous in God's sight. That's the word dikaio, which is used in Romans. Paul took that passage and brought it into Romans, especially in Romans 3.20. Nobody alive, nobody living will be justified in God's sight. Got that? Nobody living. Some translations say no flesh. The Septuagint has it right. It says no one alive will ever be justified in God's sight. But one died. And the one who died was justified. That's Jesus Christ. But when one died, all died. That's 2 Corinthians 5.14. What are you doing here? If you're understanding this, you know what's happening? You're falling in love with Jesus Christ. The love of Christ is beginning to be aroused in you. It's awakening in you. The love of Christ. It's arresting you. And when it arrests you, it holds you. The reason the so-called Jesus revolution didn't last with some is because they didn't come to this conclusion and the love of Christ didn't get arresting. It didn't arrest them and hold them. Hold them. The majority of them today that did last object to my message that I'm going to preach today and have been preaching for 10 years. And so the experience has actually become something other than an experience of the initial love of Christ. It's become some self-righteous thing. It's become something different, something unattractive. Nobody alive can be justified in God's sight. So one died for all, but when he died, all died. If no one alive can be justified in his sight and one who died was justified, then when one died and was justified, all died and were justified in God's sight. And so Romans 4.25 makes sense when you go all the way up to 5.18 when it says that through the one righteous act of the one Jesus Christ, all without exception, were justified. And it doesn't say just justified. It says justified with life. Justified and given life. So in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, the scripture says, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Because when Christ died, all died. And when all died, all were justified. And this makes sense when you keep on reading in 2 Corinthians, which I may do in Wednesday's message, which will be recorded by Wednesday, hopefully. So let's look at the verse now. The love of Christ impels us, has arrested us and holds us, Having judged this, 
Since one died in place of all, then all died. When did Paul get arrested by the love of Christ? When he judged, when he became convinced of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. Because then his love, the love of Christ controlled him, and that means Christ's love for all humankind, for all of humanity. So instead of cutting out parts of humanity, categories of humanity, white, black, indigenous peoples, European peoples, this gender, that gender, this 62nd gender, instead of cutting out humanity and dividing up humanity and mutilating humanity into our own little divisions, Christ, the love of Christ, is love for all humankind. For when Christ died, all died. And when all died, all were justified because all died in Christ. So therefore, when he arose from the dead, the whole of creation and the whole of humanity arose with him. It was then that the love of Christ got traction in Paul's soul. That didn't happen. There are people in that movement that are still preaching the gospel that goes like this. You've got to pray this prayer with me. Admit that you're a sinner. And then, yes, believe in Jesus Christ. Promise him that you'll never sin again. Or if you do, you keep having to be sorry. Tell him you're sorry for your sins. Promise him you'll follow him forever. That's a lot. I still don't promise him that. And I've been on the road since I was 21, and I'm 72. So I can't pray those prayers. If that's how you pray to be saved, I'm still not sure. The gospel is don't believe to be reconciled. The gospel is you've been reconciled. Believe it. That's the whole point of where this goes in 2 Corinthians 5.14. It goes to 2 Corinthians 5.19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their sins to them. We urge you, therefore, be reconciled to God, Paul said. We, the apostolic church, the apostolic church, those who become apostolic in their views and in their virtues and in the love of the love of Christ controlling us isn't a Christian virtue it's an apostolic virtue it happens when you grow into the maturity of apostolic love of the love of Christ when you become a participant in the love of Christ then our message is this Jesus Christ who knew no sin became sin for us that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. We urge you, we beg you, be reconciled to God means you have been reconciled to God in Christ. Now acknowledge it, receive it. We do not say believe and you'll be saved. We say Christ's faithfulness saved you. We do not say Believe and you'll be reconciled. We say, God reconciled you in Christ. Believe it. Is faith important? It sure is. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the conviction of unseen things. What isn't seen that faith sees? Faith sees a change of the human situation that happened in Jesus Christ when God was in Christ, he reconciled the world to himself. Do you see that? You don't see that by sight, but we don't walk by sight. We walk by faith. Faith gives us a sight that the world has been reconciled to God. Faith sees what the word of God says, and it has a vision of it. And so in 2 Corinthians, when it says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, faith sees a reconciled world. Faith sees something unseen. 
to sight, unseen to the new god of technology. Technology can't see this. Technological instruments can't see this. Scientism can't see this. Physical eyes can't see this. Empiricism can't wrestle with this. Positivism doesn't wrestle with this and can't see this. Rationalism can't come up with this. Faith is a surpassing means of perception that sees this. It sees, and it doesn't have fantasies where it is its own hero. It has a vision of Jesus Christ in whom the world was reconciled. And so faith sees the change of situation, a radical, permanent alteration that occurred in Jesus Christ and the cross. But faith also sees something hoped for. The hoped for is when that situational change becomes an actual condition in the universe itself, when the universe itself is transfigured and transformed, when the resurrection occurs and we are resurrected into immortality and incorruptibility, in a moment, in an atomic moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the appearance of Jesus Christ, when every eye sees him, when every knee genuflects, when every tongue acknowledges him, as Lord and as Yahweh. Every, every, all. So when did the love of Christ begin to take hold of you, Paul? When I came to this judgment, when I came to this conviction, when I came to be convinced that when one Christ died for all, all died. People fight the very thing that makes you love Jesus Christ in reality instead of just say it. In the Jesus revolution, we used to sing, oh, how I love Jesus, but did we? And did it last? In my case, it lasted because I came to a judgment of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. I didn't say one day, oh, I believe everyone's going to be saved. I looked at Jesus and saw him as one who saves everybody. It was not, again, I did not say one day he saved everybody or he saves everybody. I just saw Jesus as one who saves and has saved everyone. He has. Someone will say, do you think he will save everyone? I say, no, of course not. He already has saved everyone. He already has saved everyone. We walk by faith and not by sight, said Paul. And earlier on, what did he say? We look at things which are not seen because they're eternal, they're permanent, they're eschatological, they're lasting, they're not evanescent. They're everlasting. We look at what is not seen. Everlasting things. The change of situation that happened in God, in Christ, on Calvary for all of humanity. That's what we see. Then what happens? Now you know why Paul says in 5.16, from now on I don't see anybody like I used to see them after the flesh. How can you? If you've seen people as already reconciled to God in Christ by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, and if the love of Christ got a grip on you and holds you forever, and that love of Christ is toward all of humanity, how can you look at a person, any person, or any people, or any people group like you ever did before? Henceforth, I do not know any person after the flesh. No more. I know them not after what I see about them, what they say about themselves, how they dress, what they've changed into, what they think they are, what they think they are for a while and will find out later they're not that and want to commit suicide because they did something drastic to themselves. No, we see everyone not after the flesh, but after the fact, after the fact that they've been reconciled to God in Christ Jesus. And if any person is in Christ, there's the new creation. And guess what that means? If any person is in Christ and everybody is, then we see people completely different. 
It's utterly different. The gospel is utterly different. We don't have to be ashamed of it and say, there's good news. Oh, but then there's bad news. Because if you don't believe in Jesus and promise to follow him and are sorry for your sins and throw your Jack Daniels down here and throw your porno over here and burn all that stuff and renounce everything about the devil, if you don't do all that, you're going to hell. And they say it with a nice evangelical smile. Yes, God loves you and is going to burn the majority of humanity in a furnace, a blast furnace, from which there's no relief forever and ever. Amen. Wow. Yes, there's a little bad news with the good news, said someone who was part of the Jesus Revolution recently. No, there is no bad news in the good news. It's good news. It's not good news with a hint of bad. It isn't good news, oh, but God's going to burn a lot of people. Oh, it's good news, but God's going to destroy this creation instead of renew it. No, it's all good news. It's all good. Like people used to say flippantly, it used to be a new saying, and now it's already an old saying. What's a new saying now will be an old saying in two weeks. That's how fast human language is devolving now used to say, it's all good, and that was kind of cool to say, but you can't say that anymore because it's not cool to say it's all good because everybody says it's all good, and it's an old saying, but I'll say this about the gospel. It's all good. It's all good. So how does that relate to Hebrews? Let's go to Hebrews 13. This is the way we used to preach back in the commune. Preaching on the street was fun because you didn't have any, there was no notes, you didn't even know. What am I going to teach on today? And you'd start by saying, for God so loved the world that he gave his uniquely born son, his only born son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I wish I'd have gone further with that because the devil loves that verse, John 3.16. The devil loves it. The devil loves John 3.16. First, because people misinterpret it. Secondly, because they don't quote the rest of the thought in John 3.17. God loved the world so much in this way that he gave his only eternally begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not only not perish. That's true for everybody. God's not willing that any should perish. That's already true for everybody. Not only you will not perish, but believing as a habit of life, you will experience the life of the coming age even now, right now, now, in some measure, yes, some measurable measure. But then, as I said, there's another complete part to that. In John 3, 17, for God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that through him the world would be saved. He would save the world through him. Now the devil doesn't like John 3, 16, because it's linked to 17. Now he hates it. Now he hates it. He loves the preachers that will just say, John 3.16 means that if you don't believe, you go to hell and you do perish. Instead of if you believe, you'll have life in the com- of the coming age now. It has nothing to do with eternal salvation because that was wrought by the faithfulness of Christ. That's when the devil starts hating you, when you start teaching that. You know why? That's the gospel. That's good news. And there ain't no bad in it. So in Hebrews chapter 12, we have something that links up with this love of Christ. The love of Christ controls us, impels us, arrests us from within and holds us. And let's start with 1228. It says, receiving a kingdom that cannot be moved. Let us have grace to serve God acceptably. Now let's look at the next verse, because it's about hell. Our God is a consuming fire. No, it isn't about hell. It's about God. It doesn't say hell is a consuming fire. It says our God is a consuming fire. Then something happened in chapter 13. Some human being 
probably without divine direction, made a new chapter. So let's start a new chapter with chapter 13. That's all done there, 1229. We just scared the hell out of people by saying God is a consuming fire. Now let's go to another subject. No, no, no. It's the same subject. Let brotherly love continue. Our God is a consuming fire, so let brotherly love continue to burn, is what that means. It goes right, 1229 goes right to 13.1. There isn't a chapter. Shouldn't be a chapter division there. Let brotherly love continue, continue. Meneto, meneto, meneto means let it last. Let it be a lasting experience in your life. Philadelphia. Hey, Philadelphia. Is it related to hey, agape, love in 2 Corinthians 5.14? You better believe it because one of the prime factors of agape is fraternal love. It's the love of brothers. The Bible rarely refers to Christians as believers, twice only as Christians, but dozens of times as adelphoi, brothers and sisters, siblings. Why? Because Paul wants to emphasize that you've been born into the kingdom of God by the will of God, not by your will to believe, but by God's will who loves you, by God's will who reconciled you in Christ. So siblings is a more often used term. Fraternal love, Philadelphia, Adelphos, brother and sister, sibling love. And why not? Jesus calls us siblings. So the love of Christ is his love for his siblings, his brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Who? Everybody that has blood and flesh, that's who. No, that means just Christians. No, it doesn't. It means everybody who has blood and flesh because those whom he chose to redeem in Hebrews 2.14, he became like them in becoming blood and flesh. He's not ashamed to call anyone of blood and flesh his brother or sister. Sorry, the Bible only mentions those two things, not the 62 others which the Bible doesn't recognize and will not be recognized at the judgment seat of Christ, incidentally. Only male and female will be recognized. Sorry. No condemnation, though. Just that's reality. It's just a fact. And so, receiving a kingdom that cannot be moved... That's like receiving a salvation that cannot be lost, a redemption that never will go away. Eternal salvation, Romans 5.18, Hebrews 5.9. Eternal redemption by the blood of Jesus Christ, Hebrews 9.12. Our God is a... Put them together. Receiving a kingdom that cannot be moved, let us have grace to serve God acceptably. Our God is a consuming fire and let brotherly love continue. Love is the fire here. The love of God is the fire here. It consumes everything that would hurt us, that would destroy us. Like Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they go into the fire. The fire doesn't burn them. It only burns the ropes that held them when they were thrown into the fire by the orders of of Nebuchadnezzar, the king. They were thrown into a furnace made seven times hotter than any furnace ever in Babylon to punish people. And Nebuchadnezzar himself on the verge of conversion, and he was converted after this, looked inside and saw not three men in the fire, but four, and he said, the fourth one looks like the son of the gods or the son of God. The fire of God consumed not the three Hebrew lads, but the ropes that held them. Our God is a consuming fire. Our God is love. Is there a contradiction? No. God is love, 1 John 4, 8, 1 John 4, 16. God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12, 29. Is there a contradiction? No. God is the consuming 
fire of love. Song of Solomon 8.6 says that, the, that love is the most vehement flame. It's the fiercest fire of all. So if you want to believe in hell, I got a fire that's hotter than hell. It's love. So the love of God burns up your concept of hell. I know people that should go there, though it's only right that they should. The things they've done. Yes, and you have not seen Jesus Christ crucified, have you? You have not seen what he endured. You have not seen him as the ultimate victim. You have not seen him becoming sin and becoming all those things and becoming, in effect, guilty of all those things that you think people should go to hell for. He went to hell for and endured what you could never even imagine. That's one thing we're never going to see with faith or with any other perception. What he endured when he became sin and when God treated him like sin, which is the only thing God ever hated, and it's the only thing God never created. God never created sin. He hates sin. His wrath is against sin because his wrath is a part of his radical love for sinners. We always used to quote that even when we witnessed on the street. and We passed out those tracks that you see in the movie, the Living Water Track. We had cases of them. We passed them out in Burlington, Vermont, and elsewhere. We had those exact tracks. And we used to pass them out, and people would argue and... One guy says to me, you can't witness to me. I've sold my soul to the devil. And I said, well, you got ripped off because he already owns you. <laughs> but we used to pass them out and we said things like, God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. Well, that's true. But let's take it another step further. God's wrath is against sin, not the sinner. His wrath was executed against sin, and on the cross he made sin not to be any longer. He removed sin. But Jesus became sin, yes. So something that happened there means that Jesus was removed and made not to be, as it were. He endured something of an annihilation that you and I can't even fathom. Daniel 9.26 says he was cut off, but not for himself. Cut off from anything good. Cut off from anything right. Cut off from anything pleasant. Cut off, but not for himself. He didn't do it for himself. He did it for you. He did it as an obedient slave to you. Because Jesus said, if anybody's going to be greatest of all among you, of all of you, he must be the slave to all. So when he took on the form of a slave, he wasn't just being obedient to his father. He was a slave to you and to me. He became a slave to all, and now he's the greatest of all. He's our Lord and our King, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Because he became the slave of all. Wash the feet. Of Judas Iscariot. Because, and I know this is going to shock you, but I can't wait to see fundamentalist Christian preachers see Judas in heaven. Talk about a double take, a triple take. They'll wonder, did I go to hell? Why is he here? Judas will look at them and say, why are you here? He let you in after all that crap you preached about hell. How did you get in here? <laughs> well, the love of Christ was awakened in Paul. And it awakens in us. If we're going to be what I call the apostolate atlot, the apostolate on the level of our time if we're going to be the men and women that are the true ambassadors of the love of Christ the true ambassadors here in Christ's stead this love has to arrest us and hold us otherwise you can witness all day you can pass out tracts you can preach on the street you can do all that stuff but you're not being a true ambassador of Christ because the true ambassador of Christ has one qualification they have the conviction that one died for all 
and all died when he died. The conviction of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. There has been a Jesus revolution. Some of us lasted, and it's been by the pure grace of God. We received a kingdom back then in 1972. I received a kingdom that has never moved in my life. I've moved. I've sinned. I've failed. I've what they call backslid. I was a backslidden heifer like you couldn't believe it. I did things worse than I did before I was saved, after I was saved. And God tugged me back and kept pulling me back. And some of the big stars of the Jesus Revolution backslid back into Haight-Ashbury and worse than Haight-Ashbury, the Haight-Ashbury district, the so-called Flower Children, which was a demonic movement of horror and promiscuity and death. And some of them backslid. And some of them came at the end of their life back and God granted them a wonderful repentance at the close of their life. But if he hadn't, all are made alive. All are made alive in Christ. In 1972 and thereabouts, there was a Jesus revolution. And I was eating the tile floor in January 23rd of 1972. While that was happening out there, something was happening in here to me. I had no idea what was happening out there until Phil Adams told me about it. But when I went to him and told him what happened to me, and I went to a Christian from InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, I told him what happened to me, that I had met Jesus Christ, that he became so real to me, and that he became so phenomenally real that he said to me, have a deep and abiding faith, which I've never for a second lost, even in my worst days. The kingdom that cannot be removed was given to me with a deep and abiding faith, which I'm talking to you from right now, from my heart. And when I went to this young man at the end of the hall and told him, because I was shaken, visibly shaken, about what happened to me, and I went to Phil Adams and he said to me, you'll have to pardon me if I'm tired and I don't pay attention too well to you, but I've been up for 48 hours talking to people that have had the same thing happening to them right in these past 48 hours. And I was astonished. And I did have a vision. You know what the vision was? People probably 20, 30, 60, maybe more, praying for me, praying for me, praying for me. Prayer is an exercise in the love of Christ. And it is probably the best expression of the love of Christ that we can offer for someone. Because love wills the best for someone. And if we have an enemy or we have someone who's engaged in the deepest kind of evil, you can love the person that's engaged in the deepest kind of evil for, by willing the good for them. The good for them would be their conversion, would be to, be reveal, to have Christ revealed to them. And we pray this. So in 1972, there was a Jesus revolution. In 2023, and from here on out, there should be a universally saving Jesus revolution. A universally saving Jesus revolution. Where the gospel of the glory that will fill this world, the glory of the Christ that will fill this world, is proclaimed without being ashamed, without shame. I'm not ashamed of this gospel. And I can say it at last. There's no point, there's no part of it that I'm ashamed of. Father, bring us a true revolution now. For we know that no military revolution, no political revolution, no moral revolution, no woke revolution could ever bring about positive salvation and redemption. We pray, Father, for a true revolution of a revelation of Jesus Christ, a true apocalypse that will be manifested through your people. 
an apocalypse of a universally saving Messiah, Jesus Christ. That this world and that this generation, perishing even now as I speak, a generation perishing even now as I speak, some through mutilation, self-mutilation, some through fentanyl poisoning, some through exposure to pornographic imagery and horrific imagery in video games. They're perishing. May this generation, Father, in the process of perishing in self-absorption, in perishing in false philosophies and ideologies, may this generation experience a revolution of Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance. May they see with faith's eye the universal impact of the cross of Christ, and may that impact reach their heart and soul and mind. And may you write upon our minds and hearts and their minds and hearts your laws that have to do with love and inscribe upon their hearts the mind of Christ. Grip them with the love of Christ, Father, and grip us with the love of Christ that we may be truly your ambassadors, the ambassadors of Christ in this generation. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen, and thank you for your kind attentiveness as I went off the rails.